Well, today we've reached Jonah chapter 3. Uh, maybe you missed Jonah 1 and 2 back in chapel 2018. Uh, but that's okay because in many ways the second half of Jonah is basically a replay of the first half. Uh, God commands Jonah in almost exactly the same words that he did at the beginning of the book. Uh, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And for the second time, Jonah gets up and goes, though, of course, the first time he did go in the opposite direction, a little detail. Uh, but both times, he meets this group of pagans who end up fearing God. And the result of the meeting in both halves of the book is also similar. Jonah prays, and then God commands and controls the natural world to get Jonah to where he needs to be. Now, if you're curious about why on earth Jonah ran away in the first place, uh, you're going to be disappointed. We don't get the answer to that question till chapter 4. Instead, as we just heard, we get this wildly extravagant portrait of repentance and a challenging and mysterious presentation of the ways of God. Jonah 3, I think, expects us to wrestle with the enigma of a God who is both powerful and compassionate and to ask ourselves uh, what Israel and what we, for that matter, are supposed to learn from really the two stories that Jonah 3 tells. God's story, which is a story of two halves, as we'll see in a second, and Israel's story at the end. So as we come to this chapter, uh, let's pray. Father, as we reflect on your word this morning, fill us with confidence and fill us with amazement that we may live as your faithful servants in the world. Amen. So Jonah 3 has got a number of unusual features, I think, beginning with the understandable decision by the narrator to tell us that Jonah obeyed the word that God gave it. You know, other prophetic books just take that for granted. Um, but then the story ignores the long journey from the beach to Nineveh and chooses to focus instead on the size of the city. Now, beginning with God's description of Nineveh as a great city. In verse 3, uh, that phrase, it was very large, is probably a bit of a cautious translation of an expression that probably means something like it was stupendously large. No doubt the three days travel time across the city and the suburbs would have been probably more interesting than the three days time inside the fish. Uh, as Jonah begins his day's walk in verse 4, I believe we're expected to imagine the innumerable multitudes of people that surround him. How do we think of them? Are they souls precious in God's sight or a horde of vicious enemies? You know, for an ancient Israelite like Jonah, this would have been like walking into the largest lion's den ever. You know, maybe the repetition of three days is intentional as Jonah swims through this sea of hostile humanity. Maybe we could adapt little bits of his prayer in the fish you know, the engulfing crowds threatened me, enemies surrounded me, hostility was wrapped around my head. As I say, it's a very unusual narrative. 
But most unusual of all, of course, is this glaring contrast between uh, the extravagant description of Nineveh and the brevity of Jonah's sermon. In Hebrew, it's just five words long. In fact, the whole book contains just these five words of prophecy. You don't get the impression Jonah was working very hard to win over his audience. But, verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. Think of that vast mass of hostile humanity swirling around the reluctant prophet. And with five small words, the God of heaven instantly subdues the city. You know, as easily and awesomely as he calmed the sea when Jonah was thrown overboard. This is actually, I think, the second great miracle of the book of Jonah. It's a miracle of God's unimaginable power. Now, the miracle wasn't that they believed a random stranger, I don't think. Right? Pagan idol worshippers basically lived in terror of the universe, and they were responsive to all sorts of omens, including random strangers rocking up with messages of doom. Jonah should have made them nervous, uh, but only enough to send them to their own prophets to get confirmation, I think. Instead, though, God's five words instantly strike down 120,000 people in terrified repentance before the king even hears the message. And when the word does reach the king, the excessiveness of his response, you've got to admit, it's a little bit comical. Jonah's five words move the king to exchange his throne for dust, his robes for sackcloth. You know, that culture, fasting, sackcloth, dust, it was this symbolic way of turning from life to embrace death. You know, it tells God, I'm so ashamed, I wish I were dead. Your anger is going to kill me and I deserve it. Don't you love the bit about the animals? You know, I don't think it's the king thinks that the animals can repent. It's because their lives are forfeit too. That's how much trouble the city is in. It's an amazing portrait of God, right? The God of Jonah is a God whose control over the Ninevites is so absolute that he can create repentance in 120,000 evil hearts with five words. But the story gets a twist in verse 9 when the king asks a semi hopeful question. Maybe God will see our dramatic reaction and match it with his own. You know, if we turn from our evil, maybe he will turn from his wrath. And in verse 10, when God sees them turn, the destruction that he decides to withhold is actually the same word in Hebrew as the evil they turn from back in verse 8. There's a very close symmetry between the Ninevites' action and God's reaction. And that, frankly, is a troubling symmetry because God's reactiveness in verse 10 doesn't really sit comfortably with the idea of God's total control in the first part of the story. Right? He actually has a change of mind. More than that, it's a change of heart. The word relent suggests an emotional regret and that feels very different, doesn't it, from how God was at the beginning. 
when his announcement that Nineveh would be destroyed caused the whole city to repent in this giant miracle. And it's like verse, verse 10 doesn't see it like that. It speaks as if the people's repentance made God regret his announcement of destruction. It's like God says, uh, sure, I knew you'd all start praying, but now that you are praying, I'm filled with compassion and I'm going to reverse my decision to destroy you. It's the sort of behavior most parents have indulged in, but we don't expect God to be like that. You know, imagine you're driving your kids, if you have any, to the beach, and they're mucking up in the back seat, fighting and yelling, till finally you say, okay, that's it, we're going back home. And they say, oh, please, Dad, we're really sorry, we promised to behave. Floods of tears. And so you say, all right then. I can't bear to see you so upset. Just don't do it again. Now, I'm going to guess that most of us parents have maybe done that, but we'd be the first to say it wasn't our finest parenting moment, right? Our compassion has won out over our discipline and undermined our power. Well, here in Jonah 3... God's compassion takes the form of responsiveness, of changeableness. And, and while I guess that feels sort of beautiful, it's actually deeply troubling. Numbers 23 says this, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? So the enigma of Jonah 3 is how we hold together these two portraits of Jonah's God. The one whose power determines the Ninevites' response and the one whose compassion responds to the Ninevites' actions. This is a paradox which the Old Testament reflects on in a number of places uh, using the illustration of a potter. This is how the illustration goes. God is like a potter who has it in mind to make the perfect pot. But the process of making it may not be a straightforward one, especially if the clay is flawed. Uh, a pot may be shaping up beautifully on the wheel, but then all of a sudden it goes out of shape and the potter changes his mind and mashes up the clay. But that mashing up process may actually be what the clay needs so it can eventually be turned into the perfect pot. Now, a second pot may go out of shape, but uh, the potter may be about to mash it up, but almost as if the clay knows what's about to happen, the pot goes right again, the potter changes his mind, and he keeps the pot. At each stage in this image that's used a few times in the Bible, the potter responds to the behavior of the clay, but the outcome is never in doubt. God is always in complete control, and the end result will always be God's perfect pot. Right? In other words, I think God does know and control Nineveh's future completely. His powerful word does bring about what it says with effortless and miraculous perfection. But God chooses to bring about his predetermined future, not just for Nineveh, but for the whole world, by responding compassionately to human choices. He gives us real freedom to make real choices, but he accompanies us mysteriously in our freedom so that his own freedom is not restricted. In fact, our choices give expression 
to God's freedom. What this means, of course, is that when Jesus returns to judge the world and the new heavens and the new earth are revealed, we will see God's perfect pot at last for the first time. It will be the exact pot he had in mind from the beginning, and the choices we made will have contributed to its shape. That is the God of Jonah 3, completely powerful, totally sovereign and in control, but also deeply compassionate with a responsiveness that doesn't compromise his freedom. Well, that's the story of God in Jonah 3, and this leaves us with one more question about this chapter, which is, well, why did Israel need to hear this story about God's powerful and compassionate rescue of Nineveh? What's the point of it? So this brings us finally to Israel's story, which is sort of artfully woven into this chapter, if you look carefully enough. The critical clue is hiding in verses 9 and 10. These verses are remarkably similar to a couple of verses back in Exodus 32. Remember that chapter? Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. And while he's away, the Israelites down below are making a golden calf to worship. This was such a terrible betrayal that God threatens to destroy them on the spot. And you all know what happens. Moses intercedes. And his prayer was the same prayer the king of Nineveh prayed. Exodus 32, Moses says, Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. And listen to God's response to Moses. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people Israel the destruction he had threatened. The exact words we read in Jonah 3.10. See what's going on. The narrator wants his Israelite readers to compare themselves to the Ninevites. And as it turns out, the Israelites were actually a lot worse When they sinned, there was only one person, Moses, who fasted for 40 days and who pleaded for mercy. And while there's plenty of humor in the Ninevites' over-the-top repentance with those sackcloth-wearing animals, I think this is actually intended as a deep rebuke to Israel. Compared to Nineveh, Israel barely repented at all. They knew so much more, they behaved so much Worse, and yet God had compassion even on them. No, the Ninevites were Israel's worst enemies. And their repentance is narrated, I think, so that Israel can do a little bit of serious self-reflection. I think that Israel's take-home points apply to us Christians today as well. When we think of the worst enemies of Christ's church perhaps those individuals and groups who work to undermine and tear down the church to erode religious freedom, to muzzle the gospel in schools and public places, to mock righteousness and ridicule faith, or those around the world who persecute and imprison and kill Christians for our faith. Jonah tells us that these enemies of Christ's people God has compassion for them too. And have you considered that these enemies might, like Nineveh, be more deserving of God's mercy than you are? 
that's an uncomfortable possibility. Either way, we need to remember that these enemies are also caught up in God's great purposes. They, too, are part of his plan to make the perfect pot. We haven't got to the climax of Jonah yet, where Jonah himself quotes from the same Exodus passage on the topic of God's compassion, but I want to leave Jonah behind and consider not just how Israel should have responded to Nineveh's rescue, but how they actually responded. And as we know, the answer is not pretty, is it? Their hostility grew stronger, not weaker, and so did their unrepentant pride and complacency. The deep lesson that Israel failed to learn from Jonah was that their choice to ignore God and take their salvation for granted might be a sign that God is about to change his mind and produce the perfect pot by mashing Israel up. And sure enough, when God walked among his people in the person of his son, the words Jesus spoke did not create instant mass repentance. Remember his words from Matthew 12. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So here's my last question for us to think about this morning. How can God use his power to destroy a person or a nation and still be compassionate? Well, two thoughts. First, I think when God speaks a rebellion-creating word, it's part of his good plan to create the perfect pot. Now, Paul wrestles painfully with God's decision to destroy his own chosen people, but he recognizes that God's judgment of Israel opens the way for the gospel to go out to every nation Jews and Gentiles together in one great uncountable multitude, a testimony to the magnitude of God's compassion. Here's what Paul says in Romans 9. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Secondly, of course, when God speaks a rebellion-creating word, the rebellion which those humans freely choose moves God just as deeply as repentance does. In fact, it moves him more. We know that because of God's terrifying decision to allow himself to suffer from Israel's decision to rebel by dying at their hands on a cross. You know, the terrible death of Jesus happened for the same reason as the terrible death of Israel, to open the door of salvation to the whole world. Well, at the start, I prayed that this chapter of Scripture would make us confident and make us amazed. I hope that it has, at least a little. And as we head away from chapel, I'd like to encourage you to hang on to those responses. Have confidence in God. You know, God is in control of everything, absolute control, including whether or not people repent. 
know, when you share the hope that you have in Christ, those gospel words carry with them the power of the creator of heaven and earth, the power to judge and to save according to God's sovereign freedom and infinite compassion. The compassion God shows on the cross is the compassion he shows when Christ is preached. The power God showed when he raised Christ from the dead is the power he shows when Christ is preached. So have confidence in God. And be amazed. Be amazed at God's mercy and most especially his mercy toward you of all people. The people he brings to repentance are perhaps the least deserving people he could have chosen. And as you recognize that uncomfortable truth about yourself, it will bear precious fruit in your life. For now, it will keep you depending on God's mercy and in humility and true repentance. And of course, on the last day, it will bring you before God's throne with a song of praise pouring from your heart. As Paul wrote, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. So to him be the glory forever. Amen.